0: People first organizations
1: will win in the future of work. The only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want, want purpose to work. work. HR led organization is. I'm
0: the sorry, but leaders don't need lead empty desks and empty shop
1: floors. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hello, and this is Sri Chalapa again with People's Strategy Leaders Podcast. I'm today joined with my good friend, Dan Pontrefact. Diane Porterfact is a renowned leadership strategist, author, and keynote speaker with over two decades of experience in senior executive roles at companies such as SAP, TELUS, and Business Objects. Since then, he has worked with organizations worldwide, including Salesforce, Amgen, the state of Tennessee, Nestle, Canada, Post, Autodesk, BMO, and the Government of Canada, Manulife, Nutrium, and the city of Toronto, among many others. As an award-winning and best-selling author, Dan has written five books, Work-Life Boom, Lead, Care, Win, Open to Think, The Purpose Effect, and The Flat Army. Dan also writes for Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and other outlets. Dan is also a renowned keynote speaker who has presented at four TED events and has delivered over 600 keynotes. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria, Gustafson School of Business, and has received over twenty-five industry individual and book awards wow dan you've lived multiple lives in this uh time you've been on this on this earth
0: thanks it's so good to be here Shikrad. thank you so much for the invitation
1: yeah i know we connected a couple of years ago you were launching at that point i think believe the purpose effect if, if i remember right that book and you just launched a new book work life bloom so we'll focus our discussion around that um given i mean i love the title by the way work life bloom is exactly what everybody should be thinking about um what made you decide to book write the book now and why is it pertinent today
0: ah uh well i i suppose there's a couple itches that i'm scratching uh the one of the big ones was work-life balance and the fact that it's an utter myth it's a zero-sum game it's something that Leaders think they are espousing, yet it's not happening. So I think we just need to cut the term and figure out from a reverse engineering perspective, well, if it's not work-life balance, what is it? And so I I did some research and said, well, okay, there are two factors. There's our work and there's our life. And it's not that work is a part of life, that they're separate, but that leaders need to be thinking about how and what factors come into play so one can bloom or thrive or flourish, whatever word you want, but the title of the book's Bloom, you know, in both. And so work-life balance is a problem. A couple other little ones, they're sort of HRE, if you will, human resource EE. Uh, Employee engagement, terrible. Well, I mean, not just that it's terrible, it's that we keep measuring employee engagement as if it's going to change. And it hasn't. Like 28, 25 years of basically the same results And so I had to ask myself, well, why? (laughs) Why is it changing? We spend billions of dollars on learning, leadership, culture change. We have all these tiger teams and organizations that are trying to move the needle up two points on their employee engagement score every year. It's like nonsense. So I was like, okay, well again, maybe people go through cycles in their work and their lives. And sometimes they're up and sometimes they're down, but why? are they up and down so those are two big ones work-life balance and employee engagement
1: so when you say work-life balance is a myth can you expound on that more because that might shock a lot of people to say hey it's a myth what does that mean should I just keep working or what does that (laughs) mean to me as an employee and to me as a manager
0: yeah so when you say it's a, a myth when I say it's a myth uh it's just not enough to say let's balance work and life because as we all have found out not just because of the pandemic coming into the pandemic post pandemic if that's what we want to call it these days there's work and there's life and you, if you only have 168 hours a week so if you're balancing work and life does that mean that you know you're only going to work 35 hours and you're trying to lie to yourself that you're not going to work 40 hours or 42 or 50 or 55 what about if your part of your work is a second job. And maybe that second job is a recording studio. <laughs> and that second job is like a purpose. Right. And you love what you do during the day, but you also love what you do in your second gig, whether it's a recording studio or what have you. So is that not work? And if you're, do you feel bad that you're now, quote, working 60 hours a week because 40 is a day job and 20 is a, you know, afternoon or night gig? So does that mean you're imbalanced? Or again, are you perhaps looking at it a bit differently, and particularly leaders and owners and and C-suites and so on, about what are we trying to do? Are we trying to sort of fake ourselves into that there's a balance? Are we trying to fake ourselves into thinking that we must bring our most authentic selves to work? Or maybe we're just trying to set up the conditions where people can be their best in both work and life, and that leaders in an organization and ourselves reflecting on the self, being self-aware, there are the factors that we need to be thinking about that allow us to, as I say, bloom in both. Because quite frankly, we bring our work into our lives and our lives into our work.
1: Yeah, you know, I, one thing I talk about a lot, and this was driven by, uh, you know, the the book uh, Peter Frank, uh, Victor Franklin wrote, right, about having purpose, yeah. and, and I'm sure you're aware of that. So in that, <laughs> Now, what I think about is what keeps me, wakes me up in the morning and gets ready, you know, get me ready for work is because I feel like there's purpose in my work, at least for me, right? And I feel if people can get that purpose in their work, even at work, and then purpose drives them beyond work in their life, I think that's where I feel like they have the best outcomes for their own happiness and, and their outcomes for their uh, reason to get up and live longer and healthier lives. Uh, both mentally and physically and organization obviously benefit if they create that you know sense of purpose as well um what are your thoughts on on that mindset
0: well you're you're reading my mind and you're sort of pointing out two things that are happening in the book itself simultaneously so if you kind of think about um a two by two matrix for a second here and on the y-axis the tall one on the left there that's work and on the x-axis, you know, the bottom line, if you will, along the bottom of the two by two, that's life. Then what you have is sort of uh, the foundation of what I'm trying to get at in the book, work, life. And on the top right is sort of the bloom bucket. If work is going well and life is going well, then you'll be blooming. But then you kind of deconstruct the model for a second. So what has to go into work and life Um, In order for you to bloom. Well, to your point, on the work side, one of the factors is purpose. And on the life side, one of the factors is meaning. So if I'm in my gig or gigs in a gig economy, you might have multiple ones. And you feel as though the organization has that sense of purpose, that it's not just there for revenue and profit and EBITDA and shareholder return, that it's there to serve you as a human being, but also the community, the clients, the suppliers, the partners are not treating people like criminals or that they're using them solely for sweat equity, as we say. Then you're going to start to feel a little bit better about the whole organization's mission so that its purpose is relevant to who you think you are as a human being. So now flip to the the x-axis, the life factors. Well, if if work uh, is part of our lives and life is part of our work, yet there's no balance, what we're talking about then is like I I need a sense of meaning, right. When I go home, I need a sense of meaning to be brought into the workplace. So my sense of meaning in life better be pretty good. I better be self-actualized and self-aware so that I feel as though that I'm a human being who can flourish regardless of the scenario. But if my boss or my organization is sort of stripping me of my self-actualization and my sense of meaning, very difficult to be blooming, isn't it?
1: Right. Right right i think so the onus to some extent is on the employee and the individual but the onus lies with the organization and the management to create an environment that gives them a sense of purpose at work
0: this because- is this is exact, this is exactly it so there's a there's an equation i believe in my research that we've been missing and that is the leader the organization is looking at almost only The work factors and even that they're doing it terribly wrong or terribly in a terrible way, kind of poor. And so what I'm getting at is the employee also has a responsibility to be thinking about and enacting those work factors. So they have to contribute to the organization's purpose. They can't just walk in and say, oh, great, they got purpose, so I don't have to do anything about that. No, you as an employee have a relationship with that work and that organization, so you have to feel as though you are contributing to the work factors. Now, the flip side, again, to your point, it's it's astute, and you've really honed in on the book's point, is that... The leader in the organization has to look at some of those life factors of the human being so that they can bring those into their life, but they also find a way into work. So meaning is one. But another one or two other ones we can talk about are um, relationships and skills. So relationships, just like meaning, is so important. Like We're in a loneliness epidemic in the U.S. right now. Even the Surgeon General um, has come out with an 88-page report in the end of May 2023 that said... Loneliness is essentially the new smoking in the organization. So what can we curb that with? Relationships, networks, connections. So if the uh, leader is not aware of that loneliness epidemic and also is not doing anything to help that individual, not just with networks and connections in the organization, but potentially outside of it, helping them see how community is important, whether it's a faith group, whether it's a bowling group, whether it's playing softball, whatever it is, having discussions about the importance of relationships is pretty key. And then just like skills, another one. So yes, I believe the leader has a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the enroll skills of that uh, employee are up to date and able for that person to perform. But what about next role? What about, again, uh, in life? Are there other things that we can help this person with feel like they're a human being who can perform, not just at work, but in the community and at home?
1: Right, right. You know, the relationship aspect is so important. Um, I was, I, I always wondered that, you know, I've been to Europe a few times and, you know, you look at some of these uh, blue zones where people live longer, happier lives, right? Like Okinawa and places in Greece and Italy and uh, even in in U.S., And one factor that's common in all of those is relationships. Now, Italians smoke a lot more than the Americans do, right? (laughs) They're eating bread, they're eating cheese, they're drinking a lot of wine. Um, So obviously the contributing factor, if you go purely by medical evidence, would say that they would die sooner than the Americans would, but they don't, they live a lot longer. And it turns out relationships play a huge factor. And I think we can translate that same evidence into workplace relationships, bring that happier self to work. And when you're generally happy and and fulfilled at work, you tend to perform better. You you tend to have better purpose at at work as well.
0: Um, Well, I'll I'll add to that. So um, Dr. Robert Waldinger is sort of the current, um, I guess, curator and director of one of the world's best examples of the importance of relationships. And um, and basically, it's called the Harvard Study on Adult Development. And it's an 80-year study so far. So he's sort of like the third person to take over this data. And they basically tracked um, a number of individuals over an 80-year period. And they found out that the single greatest thing that kept these people alive and, quote, engaged or blooming or happy, what have you, right, was the degree and depth of those relationships and the number of relationships that they had. So when you have a longitudinal study of, you know, it's about 600 people or so, and, and now they're in a second generation study by the way. So they're, they're looking at the kids and the offspring and the grandkids of those original uh, individuals. It's like for 80 odd years, they've been tracking these people. And the, the, what Waldinger pointed out is that there's one thing, relationships, that's going to help. So if that's the number one thing to keep people alive for a long and happy life uh, past the age of 80, and healthy, ultimately, then don't you think that maybe leaders should do something about this when it comes to the relationship life factor, despite the fact that uh, it might not be quote work?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a a silent killer, lack of relationships, you know, I think that's exacerbated by the pandemic, to be honest, right? Um, And I was thinking about that as well. You know, it's, Obviously, it's hurt us in a personal life which people don't actually realize that, and a lot of younger generation and even my generation, I should say like i wanna I'm getting used to that being alone a lot because of the whole pandemic, and now it's hard to switch back to a social yeah. setting and I realized that I was avoiding some social events in the last year, and I realized I was probably social anxiety at this point because I had was away from doing all that for for a couple of years um but that being said remote work in that case would be a contributing factor to that as well at workplace when you talk about relationship at workplace i mean when you're remote it is a lot harder without a doubt to build stronger relationship at workplace right so uh, so there's an argument to be made that maybe remote work is not all that good for in in some for in some ways right like what are your thoughts about that
0: you had me at hello i fundamentally believe having been in two large organizations that were multinationals, SAP and TELUS, for a 17-year period in these two firms and having implemented, essentially calling it hybrid work through that era. I mean, my team specifically, as an example in both organizations, had uh, anywhere from 50 to 150 people, depending on what organization. And anywhere from four to 11 time zones. And so you just have to deal with that first and foremost factor is that people aren't always in the same office. So I had to learn that. But what I'm getting at ultimately is that I also ensure that the team traveled and we met uh, twice a year together face to face. So I completely and fundamentally agree. A 100% remote work strategy is flawed and will wind up creating less blooming or stunted or renewal type of individuals rather than blooming if we're not having some face to face contact time. Because it's harder, as you say, to build that relationship solely virtually. And it's harder to maintain them if you if you just meet once and you never get to see body language and other aspects, little water cooler bumps, little jokes, you know, all the little things that go to building relationships. So I'm a huge fan of hybrids. Uh, I'm not a big fan of fully on-site. I think people do need uh, me time and sort of uh, you know non-office, non-cubicle, non-times like that. But a hybrid strategy to me, ensuring that you have purposeful face-to-face engagements is mm-hmm. so key this day and age.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's so different when you interact with people in person uh, because all that brainstorming and serendipitous you know, discussions that lead to innovation sometimes can get affected. Now, if you are just very task-oriented, remote works great. You give them a task, it actually works better in many ways, right?
0: Yeah, but the, but the flip side is, if you're forcing people back five days a week into the office or you're forcing people just because you, you think you're paying a bunch of money for your lease on the building and they wind up on Google Meet, Zoom or you know whatever, WebEx or um, Teams all day in, in their cubicle at their desk, what's the point of that? You're just demotivating them, right? So there's this balance, uh, ironically using the word, but the balance that you do need is between always at home and always at the office. And I, as I say, I think I fundamentally believe that hybrid is the way to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, I 100% concur on that. Um, I'm going to double click on this thing you said earlier about employee engagement is a myth. You know, I think a lot of <laughs> HR, HR leaders, researchers and software you know, providers like me be like, what? You're putting me out of business. So, what? The, <laughs> so, Dan, explain if it's a myth, then what is not a myth in that context?
0: So, I mean, it's a bit of a headline grabber, obviously, but the point is um, so many organizations have been looking at their employee engagement results and not seeing a material change. And so, what I'm getting at is if we've been asking the same questions from year on year on year on year. And although you're able to sort of benchmark against your 2010 score to your 2023 score, let's say, but it's only gone up or down by 5% or 4%, what you're forgetting is that you're not realizing that employee churn is happening and employee cycles is happening at the same time. So you're going to get... Uh, the human emotions inside of that engagement surveying. And I think we need to, um, employee engagement companies need to be doing this in a different way. I believe in my work, at least, that we all adopt a persona based on the stages and ages of both work and life. You're going to be uh, answering employee engagement uh, survey questions differently when you're in your first year and new hire, if everything is going well in your work and your life. If you're a first uh, time into the in the organization, let's say you start at the age of 55, and you've just lost a parent, you're now an empty nester, your two kids have gone away to college, uh, you're divorced, and you've taken a pay cut to take a job because you were a VP and now you're a business analyst. Mm-hmm. So you're belonging and your sense of valued uh the norms of that organization may have changed you've come in and you might be like disengaged right from the hopper right but as you grow and you're 55 now you're 57 and it's grown and you're like oh my gosh now all these things are working I've got great skills've I'm now an AI prompt engineer uh, I'm a I have tons of agency and respect in my life and my work I've now grown and my uh, my employee engagement score has risen. But someone else has come in, either new to the company, or they've been at the company five years, they got a boss, an acquisition happened, and so all of a sudden now they've been demoted, or they don't have as much responsibility, and their employee engagement score, which was really high, has now dropped to 30. Right. So we don't factor in these cycles, which is why I believe that employee engagement is a myth. Because we are not taking into consideration the cycle of both the organization and the human being in the case of um, measuring what, how people are engaged or not at a particular point in time. If we tracked everyone individually and had sort of like a, an ID and sort of said, oh, Dan in 2010 was 55%, whatever, right? I'm making up. And then in 2015 was 45%. And then in uh, 2020 was 25%. And then he left the company. Well, then you could see, well, there's one person tracked a long time, right? That you could see. well, what? why did that individual fall? But because it's anonymous and because we have no way to correlate how Dan felt in 2010, 2015, 2020, it's just numbers. It's I yep. mean, it's just it's a correlation of all employees or a business units employee. So we don't factor in their personal work life situation.
1: Yeah. And there are other environmental factors that we also need to take into consideration, right? If there's just general economic uncertainty, you can do all you want as a company, you know, because you have to probably lay off a few people, and and you're not hiring any more people, people are working a little bit longer hours. It's going to affect your employee engagement, no matter how good of an employer you try to be at that point.
0: This is exactly it. So when fear runs rampant in an organization because they think or have heard that job cuts are coming, let's say the workforce is being reduced by 20%. And they think it's coming in January, yet the employee engagement surveying is happening in September and October, and they've heard this rumor. How do you think people emotionally and psychologically are going to feel when they're starting to do the employee engagement scoring? So there's a great example of an environmental factor, and then all of a sudden the employee engagement score drops from 65 to 48. Oh, I wonder why. Right. So this work life thing affects all of us. And so I just think we can do a better job. as So whatever we think um, employee engagement means these days.
1: Yeah. Okay. The last point that you mentioned is a myth is authentic best self is a (laughs) a myth. And that's a new term that I heard only about three or four years ago. I didn't hear that much before that. uh, And that could be just me not paying attention. Uh, So it became really hot in the last couple of years, I believe. Uh, But you're dispelling that and calling it a myth.
0: I am. And um, I'm probably not winning any friends over in this chat with this excellent chat with you uh, based on me dispelling now three myths. Yeah, To me, again, it's another one of those examples where HR and recruitment teams and even like the internal marketing teams are like, well, if people are our most important asset, then we better hook them in by saying, we want you to bring your most authentic selves to work. And what they're basically saying is, look, we, we don't care about your identity. Actually, we care about your identity. We want you to feel like you belong. Okay, good. Uh, we want to build up your skills and relationships. So bring whoever you are into the organization. We got you. Uh, bring your most authentic self into the organizations. We want you to feel as though you have agency, autonomy, empowerment. Okay. Now, as I keep uh, addressing each of these things, bringing that authentic self into the organization. Does the organization provide the means in which to allow that authentic self actually to happen? And that's my fundamental myth and flaw is that we don't equip leaders of the organizational culture with the tools, the muscles, the know-how to make that happen. And if we're not, then it's a myth because it's not happening. Right. It means we're saying one thing and doing another because we're not equipped to do the thing that we said we want them to do, which is to come with their most authentic self. And to me, that's irony. And we can do better.
1: Yeah, I actually want to add to that, and this might sound very controversial as well, and probably lose a friend, some LinkedIn friends <laughs> along the way. Is maybe bringing authentic self, even if you could, maybe it's not the best thing right it's the same thing as having a filter not everything that you think about you need to talk there are a lot of things that go through your head that you don't want to say out loud as a human being in general right you'll lose friends you because and maybe it's just a fleeting thought you know maybe you're just not happy that day and you just had a bad experience with a customer service agent or with your or you had a fight with somebody in the traffic you know whatever it is right and you want to be have filters because it can quickly escalate into something that and, and devolve into something that nobody benefits from right so even when you have as you call you know uh, uh frank or, or what do you call it um, um frank conversations uh, you know that you want to think about how you want to say it you know not necessarily not say it but say it in a way that makes sense that you're not calling out a, the person you're calling out the activity or the behavior, you know, when you give feedback, for example, right? You really want to put some filters on to do those things. Your authentic self would be to call a guy a moron and say, this is an idiotic thing you did. Why did you do that? That would be an authentic response that's going through your head, but that's not what, how you say it, right? And if you extra- extend that and extrapolate that across all behaviors as a human we can have, and bring that into the workplace, I think you'll have utter chaos and anarchy.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I agree with you And the, we obviously we're friends, because uh, we agree on everything so far, right? <laughs> so I, I interviewed um a professor in strategic management at IESEG School of Management in Paris. Her name's uh, Dr. Maya Korica. And Maya uh, said, Look, we should have workplaces that embrace what she calls the whole spectrum of human experience um, that people come with, but individuals still can choose not to share some of that humanity with their employers, as she says, lest it be used against them or that they simply don't want to. Yes. So back to most authentic self, if your most authentic self is one in which you don't want to open up Pandora's box of your entire humanity, again, the leader needs to be emotionally uh, uh, intelligent and aware that they don't want to. So don't push them to. Otherwise, again, the reverse is true. Their most authentic self is I, I just want to be myself, but I don't want to open it up. That's my authentic self. So if an employer is, tugging and pushing and sucking the soul out of that person to be more open or whatever you want to call it then again you've got a non-blooming individual from the hopper
1: yeah 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 that, that's excellent well uh coming back to the book uh last question i have you know two questions really one is what are the key takeaways from the book from a manager's perspective what can managers do to bring the best work life bloom to their workplaces and and i guess the question before that I should really ask is you know broadly speaking who is this book written for
0: yeah let's go the latter and then the former so uh, really it is for uh leaders of teams business units organizations so the 20 percent of the organization that have someone they're responsible for and the reason for that is this is not a chicken soup for the soul self-help book this is a engineered um leadership book about what you're doing to create the conditions for your team to be more productive, high performing and feeling human, uh, which are tough things to do in this day and age with so many um, particulars they have to think about. So it's like a blueprint that allows the leader to, to answer the first question now to say, look, what are the six work factors and the six life factors that I need to be thinking about that that go into an individual who might become one of four personas? We hope they're blooming because when they're blooming, that means I, as a leader and helping them create the conditions in work and life, those 12 factors in total, right, that allow them to bloom. But you have to also be somewhat self-aware of, well, if they're not blooming, what are they? And do they want to bloom? Or are they okay in one of the other three personas? So the other three, by the way, stunted means work is going pretty good, but I my life factors are, are not. So if I don't have the right skills or I don't feel like I have wellness or well-being, I don't have a sense of meaning, a leader should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. The flip of that is budding. So the life factors, like I feel respected, I've got great relationships, great skills, they're all high, but some of the things going on in the workplace are not like I'm not trusted or you know there's no purpose or i don't understand any of the cultural norms like they they get in the way there's a lot of bureaucracy so when you're budding you're like work sucks but life is going pretty well and then of course the full reversal is both work and life are not going well so the factors there i'm in need of renewal and so that's a conversation for the leader to have with the team members say well do you even want to be blooming or one of the other personas or do you want out of here like, is there something that we should be talking about with you that's just not the right fit? I'm here to support you. But maybe there's some things that I can do to help you find another role. Or let's sit down and actually consciously discuss what's going you know, not so right with those work and life factors.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, where can people get the book and reach out to you and learn more about you and your overall, you know, all the history of everything you've done?
0: Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks. This was uh, I love... I love your style—very extemporaneous, conversational, and uh, and you're curious. And you know, we violently agree in a few things, so that's nice too. Thanks for coming. Yes. That was not uh, planned. Yeah, you know, very easy. Worklifebloom.com takes you right to uh, right what you need if uh, you're interested.
1: Excellent. And where can they reach out to you and learn more about you and your work?
0: That will take you there too, actually. It's all a nice little hive of books and Dan and speaking and workshops and all kinds of stuff. So worklifebloom.com will get you there as well.
1: Shri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag PeopleStrategyLeaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound
0: engineer at Kalinga Production Studios, for recording and mixing this show.